0: Uh, well, good evening. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am the teaching pastor for our college ministry here at Anderson. Uh, and man, it is really exciting. I love uh, having an evening service. We were just talking about this with a few of our friends before before uh, the service started, about how, like, oh, it's like night church. It's kind of edgy. I don't know. Like, there's something different. Everybody feels a little bit younger, a little wilder, right? Like, and we're ready to go eat a potluck. And man, I don't know. Like, it's going to be great. Uh, and, and I'm just, I'm really thankful for opportunities like this to come and, and to just... Open the Word of God with, with all of you. Normally I'm just t- teaching and, and working with college students. But man, it's a joy and a pleasure for me to come and just worship with our body as a whole. Uh, and this evening we're actually beginning to move into, not, not no longer in the book of Philippians. Zach, our beloved campus pastor, wrapped that up for us last week. and So now we're beginning to move into the Advent season. Uh, we're beginning to approach this, this wonderful day, this, this moment of remembrance that Jesus Christ came. And that he appeared in flesh, that, that he came to this world to save us. And so this evening, as we begin to look in at the kind of just first moments of this season, uh, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your phone or whatever you've got. but But essentially... This evening we're going to be focusing in Luke 2 on essentially the the first appearance of our Savior, right? Jesus Christ, who was born in just a little town called Bethlehem just over 2,000 years ago. And, And as we look at this, as we study this, as we kind of tell this story, what's interesting to me as I was preparing is I realized that, you know, the Christmas story is one that believers love to tell. Right, this is a story that the church loves to, to tell and retell, and we put in movies, and we have little vegetables acted out for us, and, and we love this story, but yet it's a story that even though we tell it time and time again, year after year, literally year after year, like clockwork, it's rich with details that sometimes we don't fully see. It's sometimes there are details that, that we kind of mix up that we don't fully understand. came to see Ma- Mary. She was doing laundry and then the angel just appeared and she was really scared. So Gabriel was like, Mary, you're gonna have what? I can't, I can't say it good. Mary, you're gonna have a baby. I, You're gonna have a baby and you will call him Jesus. And then Mary was like, I'm not gonna have a baby yet. I'm only a teenager. I'm not married. Then the angel Gabriel told Joseph that Mary is not lying. She you are having a new baby. And so they met up. They went to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's old town. They ride a donkey. <laughs> oh a camel. Oh yeah, a camel. She said, this donkey's fast. They tried to go to a hotel and they asked the keeper. Um, for a place to stay, the keeper said, We have no rooms. Literally, no rooms. <laughs> so Mary and Joseph walked away sadly, but then he said, The only place in here in Bethlehem that you can stay, stay is a staple. And then he just pointed the way and they followed. Thank you for coming. He's adorable. He's going to be our best friend. I love you, and you're the best baby i ever seen. There, I said it. <laughs> the new baby is going to change the world. You know, again, we tell the story. I know, they did such a good job. We tell the story... And yet there are moments, right, there are details, there are little elements that sometimes it's easy for us to lose track of, right? Was it a donkey? Was it a camel? It was a donkey. But were they in Bethlehem or Bethlehem? You know, I don't know. It's, it's hard, right? It's hard to keep track of all those little pieces. And so what I was hoping for us to do this evening is essentially to look in Luke chapter 2 and to look at some of the details, to really zoom in. To really put the Christmas story under a microscope, and and actually what we find is that as we do that, regardless of how many times we've experienced the Christmas season, you know, when we Zoom and we really examine these details, man, it's, it's an opportunity for us to appreciate something different about what God has done for us. Every single year, I think it's a blessing to our church. It's a blessing to us as followers of Jesus Christ to re-examine the story because there are new details, there's new facets, there's new elements that we catch maybe for the first time or, or maybe just as a renewed appreciation of what God has really done and how God saved us from death, right? in, in our gospel, that, that Jesus Christ would step out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserved. To, to raise again, to, to, to rise from the grave, to, to prove his power over sin and over death, over those things that held us bondage, held us captive. Jesus came as a, just a wee little baby. And he grew to adulthood. And he lived a life, a full life in this world, so that he could not only save us, but so that he could empathize with us. So that he could share in the burden of a broken world alongside of us. So that we have a Savior, a great high priest, who understands us on a deeply intimate level. And that's what we get to see as we examine this story. We get to see just this new way uh, of, of being amazed at what God has done. Because many times in the Christmas season, I mean, this season can hold a lot of different feelings for us. It, it can feel, hold feelings of, of distraction, of frustration, of sadness, of disappointment, right? missed expectations... And some of us, man, we we walk into this season maybe with just apathy, where we've been through it, where we're over it, and yet what I want us to do this evening is, again, to look at some of these details and to bring us back to this feeling of wonder, of who our God is, of what he's done on our behalf, through these details that we often might overlook. All right, so as we open up Luke chapter 2, uh, we find the opening statement in this chapter, the beginning of this story, is told by the Apostle Luke. He says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. All right, so this is one of those details that I think is helpful for us to not breeze past. Uh, this guy... Caesar Augustus, this man who's been mentioned by name in Scripture, uh, he's an incredibly significant figure. This is an incredibly important person. This is one of the most influential individuals of all of human history. And he appears right here in Luke chapter 2. And what I want us to do is as we begin to move through this chapter, I want us to pause and to kind of zoom back and look at this guy's life. Uh, Because, again, I think it's one of those details that's not... Uh, just, you know, inconsequential. It's not an accident that he's named specifically in this passage. Uh, instead, God has put it through there, for us in there through Luke to appreciate, again, just a new sense of what he's done, the, the fuller context of the Christmas story. Uh, so what we see when we look at the life of a guy named Caesar Augustus, actually his name uh, was uh, Octavian. So Octavian uh, started out uh, in those days as this guy... Uh, who was a, a special child, a very important uh, kid who people kind of begin to notice at a very early age uh, was going to do something different, was going to do something powerful with his life. And what's so incredible is that he became so powerful, uh, I'm skipping ahead a couple minutes, but we'll find that he will do something so amazing uh, that actually he's one of just a few biblical named figures that we can actually picture in accuracy. He's one of the few biblical figures who we actually have a face of because he wound up getting printed on a bunch of coins. And there wound up being a bunch of statues of him. Uh, and so we can know what he looked like, right? Creepy eyes and all. Like, we can take it all in. We're just like, oh, yeah, okay. That's Caesar Augustus. That is this guy named Octavian, who is, again, one of the most influential individuals ever to have lived in this earth, on this earth. And he lived in those days when Christ was born. And so what we find is we, if we look at this guy's life, As as I said, he he began life as this very important kid uh, who people began to notice was just different from the people around him. Uh, In fact, when he was described as a child, one of the people growing up alongside of him said that he was a person who had soft hands and a keen mind, which is strange. We don't generally call each other soft-handed anymore. Uh, But what that meant was that he wasn't just out a rough-and-tumble kind of kid. Like He was someone who was more of an intellectual. He was more of a, a conversationalist. And so as he began to grow up, he used his mind in very clever ways. And he used them to feed a lot of his own personal ambition. Again, being described by someone that grew up alongside of him, he said that he was a talented young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. Ooh. I don't know if you've ever been described like that. Uh, You should tell the police if you have been. Uh, but that says something, right? That says something about Octavian, little Octavian. He, there was something about him that people recognized. And said, "Man, this kid's clever, and this kid is ambitious." And he grew up in a time that was ripe. For ambition that was ripe for people kind of rising to new levels of prestige because he grew up in a time that was very conflicted. He grew up in the Roman Empire in a time of civil war. And for them, the civil war wasn't, you know, one side against the other. You couldn't just draw a line and there was two different factions like like we think of our civil war. But instead, for the Roman civil war, it was, it was a lot of different people vying for power, a lot of different elements, a lot of different uh, societies and cultures all clashing in the middle. And so when he was rising, uh, when he was Raising up as a kid, when he was growing up as a kid, there was all of this uh, infighting and war, and and what it did is it, it hindered the growth of the Roman Empire. It, it had grown to a really powerful uh, point in its kind of maturity, but there was still a lot of room to grow. When we think about the Roman Empire, we think of it past this civil war, because at the time, man, the civil war was it was just tearing people apart. Uh, but there was one guy who rose up in the midst of that, uh, who really brought change, and that guy was named Julius Caesar. And he was a distant relative of Octavians. Julius Caesar is probably the guy, uh, he's one of those Caesars that we know that name, right? We're like, yeah, I eat his salad all the time. It's delicious, right? And we think about the Shakespearean play that's about him, and, and we maybe know the the famous quote of like, et tu bouteille, right, where he's talking about his friend Brutus, who stabbed him um, when Caesar got like super assassinated, right? Like that's what happened to Caesar is he rose to power and he was kind of the leader of the Roman Senate, uh, but it was still kind of a democracy. uh, But he began to kind of bring about some different changes. He began to kind of implement himself as sort of a dictator, just kind of like a a little bit of a dictator. uh, And so people didn't like that. And so, like I said, super assassinated, got stabbed, he's dead. Okay. So once Julius Caesar died, There's more war, okay? There's more civil war. Even though he had created some level of peace and prosperity and some, like, cohesion to the empire, it begins to fracture again. And so everyone's kind of—they saw what it looked like, though, to have one kind of unified leader, and they want that back. And so they're like, well, we need to, like, thrust someone up into power. And so in those days, at this time, uh, when Julius Caesar kind of fell off, uh, there were three main people— That sort of were the possibilities of the new leader of the Roman Empire. One of them was a guy named Mark Antony. And Mark Antony uh, was just like the the prime candidate. Mark Antony was this impressive figure. uh, Like everyone like looked at him, loved him. He was like very famous, a really great communicator, an orator. And so when people looked at him, man, they thought, yeah, this guy makes a lot of sense. Right, he was popular with the ladies, he was popular with the guys, he was popular with the politicians, he was popular with the, the everyday man and, and woman of the empire. He was, he was a, a soldier, right? He had served in the war and so people respected that about him. They, they respected that he was, um, you know, just sort of, athlete. he was a very like imposing figure. It, he was probably like really great at like Roman football, right? That's, that's kind of who he was. If you just merge like Tom Brady with like, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln, a respected <laughs> politician, like just boom, like that's who you got, Mark Antony. People are like, yeah, that guy. Uh, but like I said, there were three main candidates. He was one of them. He was the primary candidate. Another one was our boy Octavian. Uh, Octavian had kind of been wheeling and dealing for a number of years, and he would kind of risen to power in his own little spheres of influence. Uh, but again, he wasn't nearly as popular, right? People respected that he was smart. But they also saw that ambition. They saw he was very sneaky. Uh, like, he probably was really great at, like, Roman monopoly, right? And be like, bankrupt. Like, that's, that's who he was. Is he was that guy that you kind of you liked him, but you were like, does he want me to like me him? Or like, what's going on? Like, it, it was just kind of a little creepy. And there was another guy, uh, but he, like, flamed up pretty early. He's kind of the Ralph Nader of his day. And so he <laughs> didn't really go anywhere. All right, so he was this kind of third candidate. I know, it's hard. But he didn't really do much, all right? So, basically, when we looked at the two primary candidates, it was Mark Antony and Octavian. And over the course of a number of years, right, this wasn't like a two-year runoff or anything like that. We feel like our election cycles like, take a really long time. For them, it was 17 years. 17 years of these primary candidates, specifically Mark Antony and Octavian, vying for power. And over 17 years, as they were, you know, wheeling and dealing and backstabbing and, and planting lies and sowing seeds of disruption... What happened is that through this intrigue, through this deception, through this manipulation, our boy Octo, he trapped Mark Antony in Egypt. He got him surrounded. He kind of had him fall from grace with with the Roman people. And and he traps him down in Egypt uh, with his uh, lover, Cleopatra, famously. uh, And he died in Egypt. He took his own life. Because he knew he had nowhere to go. That was the work of Octavian. And so suddenly... We found ourselves with the leader of Rome, Octavian, who had then become known as Caesar Augustus. So, this is a man who fought bitterly for what he wanted. This is a man who, who found power uh, through very uh, cruel ways. This is a man who essentially set himself up when no one else thought it was possible. Uh, a man who was pulling strings and pulling strings and, and even kept working even after the defeat of, of Mark Antony. He eventually brings himself in to be the leader of Senate. But he, he went a step further than Julius Caesar and he officially kind of made himself the dictator, the actual emperor of Rome. Historians look back and we recognize him as the first kind of legit emperor of the Roman Empire. That's who Caesar Augustus was. That's who Octavian became, the emperor of Rome. And when he finally reached that power, right? When he finally reached that position, what did he do with it? Right, that, that's the question that, that historians like to ask. It's the question I like to ask because I was a history major. That's why I also love going through things like this because I'm like, oh, i my degree. Uh, but <laughs> when we look at guys that rise to this, this level of power, the next, the next natural question is, okay, so what did he do with it? Like, how did he use it? What happened because of all that work? And what we find is that he actually used his power in a lot of really positive ways. Uh, He began to build up the empire, brought peace and prosperity in a way that the empire had never seen before. It was incredible. And in fact, he distinguished himself so well That in the Senate, all these other senators, all these other people that you would think maybe would be bitter towards him or frustrated with him because he kind of took charge. He kind of has leveled kind of their democracy. They were still kind of a democracy, but it was really just sort of a sham. And when he was in that position, instead of becoming bitter towards him because they saw all the good that he accomplished, they actually began to call him the divinity of the Senate. They were basically, in a way, worshiping him. And he was so popular amongst all the people, that when they looked at him, they they began to call him this other name. He he moved past just being the divinity of the Senate, and he he became known as the Divi Filius, which in Latin means the son of a god. They bestowed upon him this godhood title, son of God. He's the only guy that got called that up until that point. In fact, he also had a very unique name, a unique title that people would, would throw at him. They would call him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the very first person to ever be called that. For some of us that have sung that hymn, we're like, foreshadowing. Like, we kind of know that there's other people, or there's another person that takes that title. But, but Caesar Augustus was actually the first. Son of God, the Divi Filius. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Emperor of Rome. That's who he was in those days. And as I said, when he took that power, as he began to bring peace and prosperity to the Roman Empire, it it took a lot of shapes, a lot of forms. um, But one of the biggest ones was that he stopped war. I mean, like, there were all these wars, all these factions, he just put it all to rest. And he expanded the borders of the empire. If you can picture, even in just using our kind of current uh, state dividers, think about uh, England all the way to Egypt. All of that was the Roman Empire. You could travel from the tippy top of England to the southern, southeastern tip of Egypt, and you would never leave the Roman Empire, you would never cross a border. He stopped the war. He brought this peace. He brought all this amazing flourishing and prosperity to the city of Rome, to their capital. It's still, the historians look at it as one of the most impressive cities that has ever existed, was ancient Rome. Because he established all this infrastructure. Right, he 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 built roads. Uh, he he created a sewer system. They had running water. Uh, they had this incredible infrastructure. They they had entertainment. They had these coliseums that could hold one hundred twenty thousand people. Right in these ancient days, and, and you know there, he did all these things. All this roadwork, all this all this infrastructure. Like engineers of today would be like, whoa, yes, like awesome. Like the, we would get so excited if we saw the things that he implemented over two thousand years ago. And he knew this about himself. And so actually in his final kind of public speech, his final public presentation to the people of Rome, he told them in his own words that, I found Rome a city of bricks and I leave it a city of marble. Talking about the wealth and the wonder that he brought to his empire, that he brought to his capital. These roads that, that allowed quick travel from place to place. It allowed him to spread his power more quickly than ever before across his empire. He created this universal currency that allowed uh, incredible economic development and it allowed uh, economic domination, honestly, by the Roman Empire. Everyone wanted to use their coin. Everyone wanted to use their uh, their currency. Uh, He established and and enacted a dual language system where basically no matter where you were in the empire or even beyond, uh, you would know at least one, you would have at least one language in common with basically anyone. And so that allowed you to communicate better. It allowed you to establish business uh, better. It allowed you to uh, be educated more quickly. And he enacted, right, he brought about this, this incredible peace that actually extended beyond himself for two hundred years. The Roman Empire experienced two hundred years of peace. And he set up the empire to succeed for four hundred years beyond himself. And that's incredible. Those are numbers that, that we can't even almost fathom as our little baby nation, right? Seventeen hundreds. Yay, but like four hundred years beyond himself. That's what Caesar Augustus did. That's what Octavian accomplished. He was undoubtedly one of the most powerful men that have ever walked on our earth. And so we like to ask the question, okay, well, what did he do it? Or what did he do? How did he do it? But the other question that we like to ask generally is in examining kind of history and and these stories, these tales, is, well, why? Why Why did he do this? Octavian would say that it was because that's just how he was designing it. Was, it was his ambition. It was what he wanted for himself and for his people. Uh, but that's where Luke begins to diverge. You see, He says that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. And this was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their hometowns to be registered. Okay, so Luke is essentially giving us kind of a, a window... Into why Caesar did these things, why Caesar Augustus brought about this registration and this, you know, this whole system of everyone having to go to their hometowns, which was chaotic. Uh, one of them was that, uh, well, he needed that money, right? It was, it was for tax purposes, right? So he recognized like, hey, in order to kind of keep all these people together, uh, what I'm going to need for this huge empire is I'm going to need cash, I'm going to need troops. That's what Octavian recognized. You need cash and troops. You want to be a dictator someday? Take a note. You need cash and troops. All right? Take, remember that. Uh, cash and troops. And so what he did is he needed to know exactly how many people were in his empire because he needed to know the exact perfect balance of how to tax them, right? Because he wants them happy, but he wants them oppressed. He had an army of about 500,000 men that he needed to keep up. And so he knew that I, I got to tax them enough that it's a burden, that, that they're oppressed, that they can't really rise above their station, but I don't want to tax them so much that they become uh, frustrated with me or angry with me as their Lord. And so he needed to know exactly who was there. And so he sent everyone to go to their hometown to be registered. And, and again, this is, there was a lot of layers to this move. It wasn't like he you know, was somehow locked in uh, to like, that's the only place you could take a census, the only place you could register is in your hometown. Uh, he knew that this would be a, a disheveling a very chaotic thing that, that it would essentially remind people of who was actually king, right? of who was actually in charge. Caesar Augustus says, hey, I want to make sure that people are going and having to pick up and move by my decree because I want to remind them who's ultimately emperor. right? They need to remember who is the son of God. They need to remember who's the king of king and the lord of lords. And so they need to pick up and they need to go. They need to disrupt their life in this season for my sake. But again, Luke tells a slightly different story because he tells us in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this upheaval, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family line of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, who was promised in marriage to him and who was expecting a child. So imagine the chaos from England to Egypt, all these people picking up, moving, getting on the donkey, getting on the camel, getting in the wagon, having to, having to move all this stuff. Like my wife and I are anxious about traveling nine hours in a car with our small children. I can't imagine like weeks on a boat with a baby. Like that's terrible. And that's what everyone had to do. Uh, and yet in the middle of all of that, Even as Octavian thought it was for tax purposes, even as he thought it was something that was really going to make sure uh, that everyone remembered that he was king, that he was Lord. Luke shows us, he zooms in and he says, no, there was actually a a deeper, more higher purpose. It was because Joseph and Mary needed to go to a place called Bethlehem. Because this was essentially uh, the fulfillment of a prophecy. See, Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in strips of cloth and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. See, this is the fulfillment of just one little itty-bitty prophecy that God had given his people. When he looked at them and he spoke through the, the prophet Micah, and he says, hey, when the Savior comes, when the Messiah appears... He's going to show up in a very unlikely place. He says, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, he says, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf, one whose origins are in the distant past. God says, I'm going to move in a way that's unexpected, which is hilarious because that's, that's the way our God generally moves. We can expect him to basically be unexpected. He says, I'm going to choose this, this teeny tiny town. This little place called Bethlehem. And that's where I'm going to bring forth a king. A king who actually originated in the distant past. Right. So the people of Israel at that time, they're looking at this they're like, I don't understand any of this. Like, this doesn't make any sense. First of all, that he would show up in Bethlehem. Second of all, that he would rule over all of Israel. Seems unlikely. Third of all, that he, his origins are in the distant past. That doesn't even make sense. And yet God knew And he was giving his people a glimpse of the fact that he was going to send his son, the true king of kings, the true Lord of lords, who existed before time began, when the word was with God and the word was God. And that word would come and be made flesh and dwell among us, beginning in the town of Bethlehem. You see, Luke looks at the chaos that Octavian brought about, and he says, it's not for your ambition. It's not for your pride. It's not for your taxes. He says, it's for God. That's why all of this came about. That's why you rose to power. That's why you you, you created this system. That's why you wanted this registration to take place. Because God wanted to move these two little people to one little town to give birth to one little baby. That's why. And that's amazing. right? Because in our minds, there's probably a lot of other ways that God could have made sure that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. right? Like Mary and Joseph could have just started there. Uh, Joseph could have had like a carpentry internship that took him there. Like there are so many other viable options that didn't involve an entire empire being thrown into chaos. And yet that's what God is trying to show us. He says, man, you can take one of the most influential individuals of all of human history. And you can take one of the biggest things he ever did. One of the biggest kind of infrastructural, like wild, like changes that you've ever seen across human history. He says, I'm going to use all of that to fulfill one little prophecy. Because he's showing us that ultimately he's the one who's in control, that ultimately he's the one that's king of all kings. He's the one that's lord of all lords. He's showing us that Caesar was simply serving him. Right? Unknowingly, Caesar Augustus, little Octavian, I mean, he was serving the God of the universe. The entire Roman world was set into motion for the sake of this one little verse. Which kind of puts a different spin, a new perspective. When we read the, the final words that Octavian had on his deathbed, Caesar Augustus, as he was dying, as he had his council draw close, as he had his trusted advisors come close so they could hear and write down his every last wonderful word. What he told them, his parting remark, he says, I've played the part. If I've played it well, give me applause prideful statement from a powerful man. And yet when we look in scripture, what we see is that he did play a part, but, but he wasn't the one who wrote the script, right? He played this incredible part of orchestrating a census that would move this couple right, that lived 1500 miles away from him the census that moved the entire Roman Empire, it moved these two people to to the right town to to fulfill the right prophecy. He built roads and and created this infrastructure that allowed, in just a few decades, average fishermen with no globe-trotting experience, with no uh, know-how of how to get around the world, because of the roads that were created, they were able to travel quickly and carry with them the gospel of Jesus Christ to the farthest reaches of that empire and beyond. He created this unified currency that allowed early believers to support the movement of the gospel in a way that they never could have 50 years before. A currency that they were able to use and, and, and share and donate for the cause of Christ. For the cause of moving that gospel forward. right? To, to send people to areas where they could suddenly communicate with the locals. Because they shared a common language that was enacted by Caesar Augustus. This, this dual language system that suddenly allowed them to communicate with people that they never would have been able to 50 years before. He brought about a peace that allowed these people to travel unhindered, uninterrupted, unaccosted. It allowed missionaries to go forth to the furthest reaches. And they were able to bring with them not, not fear and anxiety, not a sword to defend themselves, but instead they were able to just bring the words that Christ had spoken They were able to bring the good news that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose. That's the part that Caesar Augustus played. He expanded the borders that allowed believers to travel freely. From one end to the other. To carry the gospel every step of the way. That's the part he played. It's a part that we begin to see even in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is just eight days old, his parents, they take him to the temple. And when he gets there, they, they run into this guy named Simeon who worked at the temple, who, who had been waiting expectantly for the Messiah his entire life, who'd been praying to God that, that God would allow him to remain on this earth so that he might see the Messiah. And sure enough, God answered that prayer. And so Simeon sees the child, and, and he begins to prophesy over Jesus. And he says, according to your word, sovereign Lord, permit your servant to depart in peace. He says, I'm done. I, I can leave now. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. He says, it's a light. Right? It's a revelation to the Gentiles for glory to your people Israel. Eight days after Jesus was born, there was a prophecy spoken over him that recognized that he was actually the reason for all of these changes. Right? That he had been prepared in, in, in front of Gentiles. In front of Hebrews. That he would be this revelation to, to all people. Not just the, the, the recognized people of God at that time. Not just the nation of Israel. But all people in all of the world. Would get to experience a new revelation. A new blessing. Because Jesus came. And lived and died. And rose. So that the world might be saved. So that we can all experience the love of God. So that we can all appreciate the God who loves us, the God who's in power over us, the God who cares about the littlest details of our lives. And so as we kind of wrap this up, I mean, my, my question for us is really simple. My encouragement is, is very concise. I, I want us to really just ask ourselves, well, well how is God moving in these days? What are the details that I'm tempted to overlook in this season? How could God be trying to bring glory to himself through my life, through my circumstance? How is God preparing me to speak truth and and grace into the lives of people around me? When I could get frustrated because Aunt Linda just kept talking about politics or whatever. You know, because these issues, or because travel is just a bummer, or because these things popped up, or because I feel this burden or the strain, or, or someone's ill, and, and that's a significant worry. And, and it's so possible for us to move into this season and become distracted and, and diverted away from the true reason of why we're here. To, to worship a God who loves us, who saved us. To proclaim His goodness and His glory. To share His gospel. right, To tell people about the fact that Jesus Christ came and lived and died. He was crucified through a system that was enacted, implemented by Caesar Augustus. When he meant it to terrify his enemies, it was in fact just another fulfillment of another prophecy. That the Messiah would hang on a tree to be killed for our sin. And that's, that's what God is calling us to this Christmas is to be a people who remember what he's done and who gladly share that with the people around us so that he might be glorified. So where is that for us? What relationship could you just step into? What what circumstance could you begin praying about right now? What conversation could God be preparing your heart for and and someone else, your your coworker or your friend or, or your family member? Because, I man, God is, is, is calling us, he's commanded us as his disciples to go and to, to share his truth, right? to make disciples of all nations, to, to teach them what we've been taught, to show them what we've seen, to bring glory to him in every circumstance. So where is that? We're, we're going to enter into just one more song of worship to close out this evening. But as we do that, man, my encouragement to us, again, is just very simple that we would begin to ask the Lord to show us where is it that he can use us to bring himself glory? Right? What's the moment? What's the conversation? What's the situation? Where is it that he's been moving pieces and, and arranging things and strategically placing us in such a time as this, in these specific days, to glorify him with everything we are with everything we have so let's ask him to guide our thoughts in that direction through prayer if you would join me God we, we thank you that you have given us Lord just an incredible picture of who you are through the story of the arrival of your son Jesus Christ God there's so many details there's so many layers God things that we will begin to unpack over the next few weeks but Lord, it's it's something that we don't want to take for granted. God, it's something that we want to appreciate in every moment of every day, in this season especially. God, we don't want to become our own little emperors trying to design our own little kingdoms because, God, this world will, will pass away. But, Lord, we recognize that your kingdom is eternal. God, we recognize that that your glory is is what's everlasting, that that your peace and satisfaction, the joy that you offer, Lord, is something that just simply beats out. It it simply transcends anything we can find here on this earth. So if you would, just take a moment right now and ask the Lord to, to bring you back to that truth, to really realign your heart with that reality that he's good, that, that he, he offers the greatest gift that we could ever hope to receive a relationship with himself paid for by the blood of Christ ask him to bring you back to, to that realization and then ask him to take it a step further for his spirit to embolden you to empower you, to strengthen you to take that truth to someone else To be quick to share why you celebrate Christmas, to be quick to share why you're excited about seeing family that that could otherwise be frustrating, to be quick to share why you're just filled with joy. Ask the Lord to prepare you to to give a reason for the hope that you have. So ask him to, to center your heart and to prepare you to share. Ask him that right now. Giving us the, the the peace and security of knowing that you're in control. God, that you've made those promises to us that, that you're at work, that God, that you have a design and a purpose and a plan. That God, you've laid a path before us for that we're just called to walk forward in faithfully. So Lord, we just ask that you would guide our steps, that God, that your word would would illuminate our path. That God, as we enter into this season, we would we would approach it with a renewed appreciation for who you are, for what you've done, for how you've been at work for centuries and centuries before us. So Lord, we ask that you would bless the season in our lives, that God, that you would prepare us well to be people who bring peace and joy, love, laughter, grace, and forgiveness, God, because it's a reflection of who you are of the God who saved us. So would we ask that you would just help us leave this place as, as changed people. Got more prepared to, to be your representatives. We pray these things in your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys. And, and we have this beautiful spread Oh, there's like sparkling lights and everything. So if you want to join us uh, at the potluck, great. If not, we'll see you guys next Sunday. Uh, have a great week.